Let's pray. We'll launch into what the Lord has for us in his word this morning. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is at work in our lives personally, in our church, in our city, and continually, Lord, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see what it is that you're doing. Cause us not to be distracted and discouraged by the headlines and all that we see around us. But may we partner with you to see your kingdom come and your will be done. In this place, in our time, in our day, we pray. And even this morning as we turn to your scriptures, Lord, would you cause them to come alight and alive in our hearts. Thank you that your word as it's proclaimed, it never comes back void. It always accomplishes that which you send it forth to do. So may it be proclaimed with your power, not mine, and may we have receptive hearts to hear what it is that you're saying to each one of us, to us as your people. We pray in Jesus' wonderful and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to turn to Revelation. We're going to read chapter 2, the words that Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church, and I'm sure most of us are familiar probably with this book and with this particular portion of Scripture, but just in case we're not, Revelation, of course, is his vision that Jesus gives to the Apostle John late in his life about that which is to come, and there's some confusion, probably more than some, might be understating it, some controversy about exactly how it all plays out. And, you know, often I get asked as a pastor, well, what are we? Are we uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-millennial, where do we stand? And all of that is important to discuss. But the one thing above all else is to remember this. It's to put Jesus in the middle, to put him in the center. In fact, as it begins off, Revelation says, this is the revelation of who? Of John, of this theology or that theology, they're all wonderful, but this is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. So if he's not front and center, then we're guaranteed to lose our way as we head through. And this, this particular portion of Revelation is Jesus writing to churches. These were physical churches and places. They no doubt have a specific local application. And yet in each of the, the seven letters that are written to seven different churches, they end with this phrase that I already prayed over us as a people, that he who had an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as the saying goes, do you you have an ear? Does anyone have an ear here this morning? If you need to check, you can. But that means that this is not just for the Ephesian church, but this is for the Vision Church. This is for each and every one of us this morning. So let's read the passage and then really set up where I want to go in the next few weeks. It says this, chapter 2, book of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And yet I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent 
and do the works that you did at first. If not, I want you to grab this. There's the love and the mercy and the kindness of God, and yet there's also the severity. He says this, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, there is all sorts of different aspects and elements of this instruction of Christ to the Ephesian church. But for our purposes this morning, I'd love to bring simply two to our attention. First of all, as Jesus gives his assessment, his report card to this church, there's a lot of incredible, incredibly good and encouraging things he says, isn't it? That's amazing. Just look at this list. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. These were an enduring, patient people. He says, I know how you cannot bear those who are evil. You, you test things. You test those who call themselves to apostles and are not. You're, you're people who love doctrine. You love the truth. You, you love to discern and divide between what is right and wrong. He even says, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. I mean, this is a pretty incredible assessment that all of us would want the Lord, I'm sure, to say of our lives and of our church. Patiently enduring. You're holding on to the truth. You're doing so much well and good. And yet, as we read on, he says he has this one thing against them, a passage, as I said, that many of us would be familiar with, that you've abandoned, some translations say that you've lost, you've walked away from, you've lost sight of the love that you had at first. So much good, and yet we see such a strong rebuke. You see, Jesus, as we read, he didn't just say, you know, you're a little bit off track here. Like, there's a lot of good, I'd give you about a 9 out of 10. As in, there's some great things there, and there's just this one little area. And for Jesus, this was of such great importance. It was of such great significance that he looks at this church and he says, despite all of this, despite this incredible report card, without this one thing, all of that counts for nothing. You've abandoned your first love without love, all the works, all the patient endurance, all of the, the wonderful rich theology. It's not of some good. It's not of a little good. It's of no good at all. In fact, he says, unless you repent and recover that, I will remove your lampstand. What's he saying? The church literally would be removed. The church was called to be a light, a lampstand. It was a picture of the church's calling to shine light in the midst of the darkness. He says, unless you repent and return to that, your very lampstand will be removed. You see, I think there's this sense, isn't there, often that we err on one side of another. Either we're prone to forget God's love and his mercy and his kindness will become religious, pharisaical hypocrites. Or by the same token, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that he is a God of justice. He is a God 
who will divide between right and wrong. He is a God who will rule with what? A rod of iron. Not just mercy and tenderness and kindness, but in the ferocity of his judgment and justice. And yet there's always mercy. And so he calls his people, he calls us to repent. Never lose sight of this reality of being a people of love. It is of utmost importance. And so using that as kind of a theme, I I want to talk for a few weeks about being a wholehearted people. And there's many other passages we could look at. Of course, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 37, we see the greatest commandment as Jesus himself is questioned and tested. And these were the scribes and the teachers and people who knew the law. 613 plus, I mean, they knew their scriptures. And they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And I love how Jesus has this way of just simplifying things down. We complicate. He doesn't come and say, well, let me give you another library worth of encyclopedic information. He says, let me simplify it down to this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul, and your mind, and your strength. A wholehearted people. That's who we're called to be. We're called to never lose sight of what it means to love God. It's the greatest commandment. It's the one thing that Jesus tells the Ephesian church. Without that, forget everything else. You lose that, all of this counts for nothing. Repent and rediscover the flame and the fire of first love. And so... I want to encourage us in a few different, and I'm praying it will be encouraging. I know we've started with perhaps a more of a challenging beginning, but I am really praying that this series would encourage us in the area of what it means to be whole-hearted people. Not half-hearted, not three-quarter, not just scraping through, but rediscovering that wonderful reality of being whole-hearted lovers of God and looking at different things that would prevent us and take us away from that. So if you want a theme for this first message in the series, it's simply this, a title. It's moving from distraction to devotion. Moving from distraction to devotion. You know, I saw some interesting statistics, and you've probably seen some things like this. But talking about the increase of screen time during the last couple of years, and for many of us, Our entire lives have been upon the screen, whether it's been working from home or schooling from home, FaceTiming from home, etc. And as you would expect, many of the statistics of how much time we spend on the the screen have increased. In fact, in many areas, it's been a 20 to a 50% increase of the amount of time that we spend on our screens. One particular study gave a few interesting stats that were as follows. For those who have a smartphone, I'd ask for a show of hands. But the average smartphone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. I don't know. Who did all that counting? It's a lot of counting. 2,617 times. That's the average user. So that's over 76 sessions. And the younger demographics, so millennials and lower, were at least double the average. So that's a lot of time spent touching our mobile devices. In fact, in this particular study, it said some of the younger demographics couldn't even report a number 
when it came to answering the question, how many times or how much time do they spend on their devices? So they were thinking, is, is there such a thing as non-screen time? I'm not sure. I'm always on the, on, on the screen. Um, video streaming services, their demands, of course, have gone through the roof. They're right up on the 50% increase. So the average video streaming service, we're talking about Netflix and whatever the other ones are, it's the only one we have, eight hours of content per day is streamed per user. Eight hours. Now, of course, let's not even go there with the multiple users that share accounts which is causing all sorts of dramas for Netflix. But eight hours of video streaming content per day. TV actually decreased, funnily enough, over the last few years. The average user only spends three hours or so on TV. But do you see how this is adding up? Three hours, eight hours. Uh, there's another fascinating study that I saw. Philip Zimbardo, he has a book talking about the crisis of masculinity in Western culture, and he gave this statistic, which grabbed my attention as well. So the average young man, by the time he's 21 years of age, has spent over 10,000 hours playing video games. 10,000. All the young people are like, yes, that's fantastic. For the rest of us, 10,000. What could you do with 10,000 hours of extra time? I'm not sure. Now, let me say this up front. I'm not against a smartphone in any way. I own a smartphone. I'm not against social media, and we haven't even talked about the amount of time people spend on social media. I'm not against finding a good Netflix series for downtown, guilty as charged. I love a good Netflix series in moderation. But here is the point that I want to bring our attention to, and I'll phrase it this way. What keeps your attention drives your affection. What keeps your attention ultimately will drive your affection. Or as 2 Corinthians puts it, you become like what you behold. We do. We become like what we behold. What captures our attention, what keeps our attention, ultimately drives our affection. And so it's worth us thinking, even as we begin looking at this, from distraction to devotion, what drives our attention? What is it that captures those moments in our life and keeps them? How is it that we spend, if we took an audit of our day, the time, which is, of course, the most precious commodity that we've been given? You cannot get any more of it. How is it that we spend that on a daily basis? And as a side issue, what impact, therefore, is that level of distraction Having upon our devotion. How is it, how is it shaping us as people? Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, who's a social commentator, he writes extensively in this space. This is a quote from him. And he's, he's a, a Catholic father. He's writing from a Christian point of view. He says, We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God. Depths and spirit, we would like these. It's just that we're habitually preoccupied we're too habitually preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are the major blocks today, he hypothesizes, the major blocks within our spiritual lives and journey. Busyness, distraction, and restlessness. John Ortberg, who's another prominent author, he said this, 
For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. So think this through with me. What if one of the greatest hindrances to us living a a personal life of devotion, living with this burning flame of passion, of having churches that were on fire for the Lord Jesus? What if it was not a hostile environment? What if it was not external opposition? What if it was not those difficult people in your life? If it was not challenging work circumstances? What if one of the major hindrances and drivers was simply our attention ultimately driving our affection or the lack of it? What if one of the greatest strategies of the enemy, you think, well, what does the enemy do? How does he come and oppose us in our spiritual lives? Some of us think perhaps he's appearing in the bedroom at night, pitchfork and red tights. And What if one of the greatest strategies of the enemy was simply to distract or preoccupy or create a restlessness in us that would take us away from our connection with the Lord. Corey Ten Boom, many years ago, she said this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And in her opinion, she went on to say, both have exactly the same impact in that they cut us off from our connection with God. Moving from distraction to devotion, I would suggest that it's right up there with one of the things that we need to guard ourselves from in order to fuel and flame that heart of devotion. So let me give us a few simple keys that I hope will be helpful for us to move from this place of distraction to devotion. Number one, it's this. We need to simplify. We need to simplify. It really is that simple. See, if devotion is linked to our attention and focus, then that's where it's got to begin, doesn't it? Luke 10 records this account, another very well-known story. And Jesus is ministering. He enters into a village and there's two ladies there by the names of Mary and Martha. Now, Jesus, of course, he's prominent. He's got quite a following. And as he enters the house, Mary's there sitting at his feet with the other disciples, just lapping up his every word, enjoying his his presence, just literally their eyes wide open, encountering the living Lord Jesus Christ who was right before her. Martha, on the other hand, she's running around and Jesus is in the house. There's a thousand and one things to do. And of course, Jesus very famously says this to her, Luke 10, verse 40. It says, but Martha was, and underline this word, Martha was his ESV, was distracted. Martha was distracted with much serving. Martha was distracted. What was it that caused her to miss the moment with Jesus in her life? Was it anything external? It was purely and simply distraction. And of course, if you read on the account, Eventually, in verse 41, the Lord looks at her and says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. I mean, Jesus was in her midst, and yet she was so anxious and troubled. What, what was the, the source of her anxiety and trouble? 
It was her distraction. Do you think Mary was anxious and troubled? We don't know, but I presume that the picture is, because Martha criticizes her, is she's just there lapping it up. She's just in this place of peace. And it's amazing how we can have a place of peace and a place of anxiety. What's the difference between the two? One was distracted. Distracted by many things. And Jesus says, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing and one thing alone. Notice it's one on the list of one. It's necessary. One thing is of great importance. One thing here is needed. And he goes on and says, Mary's chosen the good portion and that will not be taken away from her. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? We live in a world where there is so much distraction. There's no doubt, as we read from this account, that this applies in each and every generation. But just think about this in our context. At any moment, I can send an email. I can quickly check my news feeds. I can see what the weather is. I can communicate with my 10,000 closest friends on social media. I can find useful products on Facebook Marketplace, etc., etc. And that's just the, the good. Let alone I can be drawn into politics and problems and issues and concerns. In any moment of my life, there are 10,000 different things, at least, that are vying for my time, that are seeking to distract me. There's 10,000 things I could focus on, and yet the reality is there's only one that is necessary and that is needed and that is always of the greatest importance. 10,000 hours playing video games or 10,000 hours spent in the presence of Jesus, sitting at his feet. What do you think is going to have the greatest impact in fueling the flame of devotion in my life. So number one, simplify. Number two is slow down. You see, there's a simple reality, isn't there, that love and connection and devotion, it takes time. You cannot put it in the microwave and hope that in 30 seconds it comes out any different on the other end. Love takes time. Think about this. How do you treat people, respond and react to people when you're in a hurry? Maybe you're driving in traffic. As I'm sure there's a, there's a couple of L-platers that live in our suburb. And I'm sure they time the moment exactly. They see me coming down the driveway. They take it in turns. And lo and behold, the moment I turn on the highway, there's someone in a slow car. How do you respond when you're stuck in traffic? Praise the Lord. An extra five minutes to seek him and put worship music on and to spend time praying and interceding for people around me. How do we respond? I'm sure this never happens to any other families, but you're sleeping in because the weather's cold and, you know, the kids are reluctant to get out of bed and you're hurrying out because you're 10 minutes late out the door. Come on, let's get ready. Like, what is the level and the quality of your interactions? How would you rate the in-depth conversation and the quality connection during those moments of hurry on a scale of 1 to 10? Perhaps we don't want to answer such questions. The point is simply this. Love takes time. Connection takes time. Devotion takes time. We've become such a hurried, superficial society. 
And yet I look at the example of Jesus, and, and I love this because here's Jesus. I mean, even the fact that he worked for 30 years of his life before he began his ministry. And he begins his ministry, and there's nothing complicated or hurried. There's no moment where he turns to John. He's like, how are we going to squeeze this all in the schedule? Someone comes up for healing. We'll have a chat to John, see if we can book you in next month for an appointment. I've just got to check my social media feed and make sure I update my 5,000 friends. This is Jesus. He says, come to me and you'll find rest. I'm not going to burden you like the other religious Pharisees of the time with a thousand and one different things. He's got time to hang out with the kids. I mean, the disciples weren't so sure. They're like, hang on. Now, this is Jesus. I mean, he's got a busy schedule. Let's, let's just move on from the kids. It's an order of priority here. And Jesus is like, no, let the kids come to me. I've got all the time in the world. There's nothing more important than hanging out with the kids. I'm just there. I'm available for the kids. He takes three days out of his schedule to meet one Samaritan woman by the well. The most important mission in the history of humanity. I've got three days spare, 100%. It's going to go on a mission and love on this one lady. This is the saviour, and I love this, who gets criticised for too much whining and dining. He calls himself the saviour, and all he's doing is hanging out with people. He's just having a dinner. He's spending time with people and getting criticised for it. And yet, probably the most important and wonderful and pertinent for us is that he always had time to pray. He always had time to find a desolate place. Dozens of times across the Gospels. So as Jesus withdrew to pray, he'd pray through the night. He'd get up early and pray. Sometimes they're all up and they're like, where's Jesus? Oh, he's probably just, he's probably just off praying. That's what he does. There was clearly this pattern of prayer where he would withdraw and spend time alone, away from all other distractions. Now, if Jesus needed that, how much more do we need that? And how much of a priority and a practice is that for us in our lives? I mean, John 15, Jesus gives this picture. He says, it's like this, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You need to abide in me. It's not a visitation. It's not a momentary thing, is it? And I'm sure as the disciples heard those words, they'd seen Jesus' life. And they're like, yeah, that's how he lives. He lives in this connection, in this relationship with the Father. I need to do what... The Father shows me to do because I've spent the time drawing aside to actually listen and hear what it is that he's called me to do. So we've got to slow down. Simplify, we've got to slow down. Abiding is an intentional decision. Love takes time. And number three, really quickly, is we need to learn to savor. We need to learn to savor. It's interesting one of the great buzzwords of the modern wellness movement is this concept of mindfulness, as if all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're so evolved that we've discovered a reality that scriptures have proclaimed for thousands of years. Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man, the woman, the person who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, who seeks and savers. You see, one of the great problems in our society is we've created this superficiality. Screens, and again, screens are not bad. I'm not trying to say that screens are evil. We need to get rid of TVs and Netflix. And I mean, we'd probably be all a lot healthier if we did, let's be honest. I'm not saying that's the necessity. 
but they have by nature created this superficiality, this connection we feel like we're connected to 5,000 friends that we don't even really know anything about, to churches and other community groups just by viewing it online. Online is wonderful. It is. I'm thankful for it. But it's not the real picture. It's a superficiality. It's a one-sided, shallow kind of connection. You see, this kind of distraction and superficiality, it kills appreciation and it suffocates joy and contentment. How many times have you been out for dinner? And you're sitting there across the table and there's a couple or a family and what do you see? Every single family member, oh, on the phone. You know, beautiful restaurant, beautiful meal, the company of the people you love the most in the world, where's our attention? It's right here. How many times do we see if every moment that there's five seconds spare in life, you pull up at the traffic lights, not that anyone knows this, or the supermarket line, we're like, oh, I've got five seconds. Well, quick, I can grab the phone and, and check something out. And You see, we've lost this ability to really sit in and savour the moments. So focused on what we could be missing We've forgotten to appreciate what we do have. We don't have the time to enter into the goodness of the moment. So we've got to simplify, we've got to slow down enough to savour the moment. And we'll find that rather than a distraction that kills our appreciation, suffocates our joy and contentment, we'll see how this savouring attention becomes the catalyst for new affection. I want to get the worship team back up if we can. So this is our mission. We want to be a wholehearted people. We want to hear the the rebuke. That's what it is, that the chastisement of Jesus himself saying, you know, you can have all of the works, the doctrine, the, the patient endurance, the faithfulness. You can have all the stuff. But if there's no love then that counts for nothing. Not just something, not not just a little. It counts for nothing. We want as a people to rediscover what it's like to live with lives that are set on fire with a blazing fire of his love. Would you like to stand? I just want to pray for us. I feel like it's a morning. We just need to get up, stretch, and activate a little. Get out of our comfort zones. I want you to close your eyes and just turn your attention to the Lord. Just to ask you this question before I pray for you. Remembering that what keeps your attention drives your affection. You become like what you behold. So here's the question. Where are you on that scale, if you're perfectly honest, between distraction and devotion? There's no condemnation here. That's not to shame you and ridicule you and tell you how you've messed up. I love that even as we read the the words of Christ in Revelation, it's always an invitation saying, therefore, repent. Therefore, turn back to me. Discover what it is that you've lost. 
and you'll eat the tree of life. You'll find life. You'll find joy. You'll find refreshment. So my prayer for us is that wherever we are, that the Lord would move us somewhere along that scale from distraction to devotion. Maybe as you're standing there, the Lord's like, man, (laughs) I'm challenged and I'm convicted. I've completely lost sight. My life is full of all of these things. And I have. I've completely driven myself in some place of anxiety and worry. The Lord's just calling you to get back on track. Maybe you're the other end of the spectrum and there is there is genuine sense of that devotion and fire and love. Praise God. You know, the good thing is there's always more. And that's my sense is that the Lord would come, just breathe His breath upon us and fan into an even greater flame, that fire of affection. So, Lord Jesus, I want to pray for each and every one of us this morning. Lord, would we heed the words that you spoke to the Ephesian church? Would we be willing, where you reveal to us that we have allowed our attention to be distracted by so many other things, perhaps even good things, And would you bring us back, Lord, with your your tender mercy. With that grace that just reaches out in love and compassion, calls us to repentance. But it's your goodness that leads us to that place. And would you recalibrate our hearts again? Would there be a, a fresh desire to move from distraction to devotion? Show us, Lord, where we need to lay certain things down. We need to be more disciplined in things that we don't do and things that we do do. And, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would begin that journey towards a greater wholehearted affection and love and desire for you. Call us, draw us into that secret place to that radical relationship that you desire for each one of us.